calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello and welcome to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and I've got the co-host with the most, Christina Telesco. <laughs> Hi, Marco. I'm so excited to be here. And do you know why? Why? Because we're sharing two stories this week. I second that emotion. Because while this is not Up at Night's first double feature, it is our first in which both stories are by the same writer. Marie Brennan is a wildly imaginative storyteller who never fails to amaze me, and the two tales we have today are no exception. In the first story, a woman weaves by day and unravels by night, trying to spin a future when all is well. So without further ado, we present Marie Brennan's Daughter of Necessity, voiced by Nicole Zanzarella. The strands thrum faintly beneath her fingertips, like the strings of a lyre. Plain gray wool, held taut by the stone weights tied at the ends, awaiting her hand. She can feel the potential in the threads, the resonance. She has that much of the gift, at least. But it is madness to think she can do more. It is hubris. It is desperation. Her maid stands ready with the bone pick. She takes it up, slides its point beneath the first thread, and begins to weave. Antinous will be the most easily provoked. He has no care for the obligations of a guest, the courtesy due to his host. He sees only the pleasures to be had in food and drink. If these are restricted, marred, the meat burnt, the wine thin, the grapes too soon consumed, then he will complain. And it will take but one poorly phrased reassurance for his complaint to become more than mere words. The guards will know to watch for this. When Antinous draws his knife, they will be ready. Others will come to Antinous's aid, of course. The tables will be knocked aside, the feast trampled underfoot, the rich treasures of the hall smashed to pieces. Antinous will not be the first to die, though. That will be Pesandros, who will fall with a guard's sword through his heart. After him, Climenos, and then Ceres of the guards. Then it will be a dozen, two score, three hundred and more dead, blood in a torrent. Flames licking at the palace walls, smoke and death and devastation. She drops the shuttle, shaking with horror. No, no, that was not how she meant it to go. My lady? The maid asks, uncertain. She almost takes up scissors and cuts her error away. Some fragment of wisdom stops her. That is not her gift, and to try must surely end in disaster. Instead, she retrieves the shuttle, sends it back through without changing the shed, unweaving the line that had been. The pick. 
she commands, and her maid gives it to her in silent confusion. With a careful hand, she lifts the warp threads, passes the shuttle through, reversing her movements from before, undoing the work of hours with hours more, while her maid helps without understanding. I must weave a funeral shroud, she had told them. She'd intended it to be for them, not for all her city. But the power was there, within her grasp, beyond her control. She retires for the night, trembling, exhausted, frightened, and exhilarated. When morning comes, all is as it was before, her problems unchanged, her desperation the same. Gathering her courage, she goes back to the loom. Surely control may be learned. After so many years enjoying the hospitality of the palace, the men will not be easily persuaded to leave. Frustration and failure will not do it. If those were sufficient, they would have departed long since. They stay on in perpetual hope of success and will not leave until they believe that hope gone. She will choose her tool with care. Eurymachus is renowned for his silver tongue. He will bend it to her chosen end. A dropped hint here, a frank conversation over too much wine there. Why should a man stay when he believes another has claimed the place he intended to take? An elegant man, well-dressed and better spoken than his rivals, and they will see the proof of it when she bestows smiles upon him that she denies to all others. For him, she will drape herself in rich cloth, adorn her ears and neck with gold. For him, she will play the coquette. One by one they will go, grumbling, disappointed, a few vowing some revenge against Eurymachos for having stolen the place they thought to claim. But they will go without a fight. Their numbers will dwindle, 108, four score, two score, 12. They will leave, and with each chamber emptied, she will breathe more easily, until only one remains. Smiling, smooth-spoken Eurymachus, to whom she has shown much favor, he will not leave. For has she not made a promise to him, in the absence of her husband whom all presume dead? Too late, she will see that it has gone too far. He has coaxed from her words she never meant to speak, implications she cannot disavow. To do so would bring war and the destruction she sought to avoid. She will have no choice but to acquiesce, for the sake of her people, for the sake of her son. She will fail and pay the price of that failure until the end of her days. This time she is shaking with rage. To be so manipulated, so trapped, she would die before she allowed that to happen. Or would she? After all, the future now hanging on the loom is her own creation. However undesirable, it is possible. She could not have woven it were it not so. Her maid waits at her shoulder. They have long since begun to tell tales, she knows, her maidservants whispering of their mistress's odd behavior. They think it only a tactic for delay, an excuse for avoiding the men. That, they whisper, is why she undoes her work each night, reclaiming her spent thread, only to start anew in the morning. As reasons go, it is a good one. They need not know the rest of her purpose. If any hint of that reached the men, all hope of her freedom would be gone. Night after night, fate after fate, she can only keep trying. Surely somewhere in all the myriad crossings of the threads, there is a future in which all will be well. Her son will ask again for stories of his father, and she will tell him what she knows that the king was summoned to war and he went, that many who sailed to the east never returned. This time, Telemachus will not be content with the familiar tale. He will insist on hearing more. When she cannot satisfy him, he will declare his intent to go in search of the truth. 
It will wrench her heart to let him go. The seas took one man from her already. Will they take this one as well? This youth she remembers as a babe at her breast? But release him she will, because perhaps he will find what she cannot, an escape from this trap, for himself, for her, for them all. He will board the ship and go to Pylos, to Sparta, and in the halls of a king he will indeed hear the tale. Full of joy, he will set sail for home. But on the beaches of Ithaca, he will find a different welcome. Antinous, Catesippus, Elatos, and others besides, armed and armored, prepared not for war, but for murder. There on the beaches, they will cut her son down, and his blood will flower like anemones in the sand. When the news reaches her, it will break her heart. She will fling herself from the walls of Ithaca, and her sole victory will be that none among her suitors will ever claim her. She wants to weep, seeing what she has woven. The threads fight her, their orderly arrangement belying their potential for chaos. Each thread is a life, and each life is a thousand, thousand choices. She is not goddess enough to control them. Only a woman, a mortal woman with a trace of the divine in her veins, and a trace is not enough. It has become far too familiar, this unweaving. Forward and back make little difference to the speed and surety of her hands. Melantho gathers up the loose thread silently, winds it back onto the shuttle, but her mistress does not miss the sullen look in the girl's eyes. This is one who has made her life pleasant by giving herself to the men. She does not like being a maidservant, even to a queen. A queen who can trace her ancestry back through her grandmother's grandmother to the three daughters of necessity. From them she inherits this fragment of their gift, to spin thread and link it to men, to weave the shape of their fates on her loom. If she continues her efforts, but she has no chance to try again. When she goes to that high chamber the next morning, Laodes is there, and the frame is bare of threads. He knows what she has been doing. They all know, for Melantho has told them. Laodes has always been more tolerable than the others, for he is their priest, and alone among them he respects the obligations of a guest. He chides her now for her dishonesty, though, for lying to them all this time about the progress of her weaving. There will be no more thread for her, no days and nights spent safe in this room, trying to weave a path away from danger. He leaves her there with the empty frame and empty hands. She is not without choices. She has woven a hundred of them, a thousand, a new one every day but every one ends in disaster. She will not choose disaster. In fury, she takes up her scissors. There are no threads here for her to cut. She sets the blades instead to her hair. When she wed, she cut a single lock in sacrifice. Now she cuts them all. She kindles a fire and a bronze dish and gives her hair to the flames, an offering to the powers from whom she descends. If she cannot weave a good fate with her own hands, then she will pray for those powers to have pity upon her instead. The flames rise high, dancing, twisting, flickering tongues, weaving about one another in ephemeral knots. In their light, she sees her answer, and she thrusts her hands into the fire. When she withdraws them, threads of gold follow. She casts them quickly into the air, the steady lines of the warp, the glowing bundle of the weft. There, without loom, without doubt, she begins to weave the fate of one man. He is on the island of Calypso, prisoner and guest. The nymph sings as she walks to and fro across her loom, weaving with a shuttle of gold. But Calypso is no kin to the fates. Her pattern will falter, give way to a power stronger than her own. The gods themselves will order his release. 
One will try to drown him at sea, but he will come safe to the island of the Phaeacians. There he will find hospitality and tales of the war in years past, and one, the tale of his most clever stratagem, will provoke him to admit his true name. He will tell them his tale, the long years since that war, and out of respect they will aid him in his final journey. In the house of the swineherd Eumaios, his son will find him. Telemachus, evading the trap Antinous has laid. Together they will devise a new stratagem. The king will return to his palace as a beggar, to be ridiculed and mocked by the men who have impoverished his house for so long. And she, she will put a challenge before her suitors to string and shoot her husband's bow. One after another they will try and fail until the filthy old beggar does what they cannot. And then he will turn his bow upon them until every man among them lies dead. Odysseus, king of Ithaca, will come home at last. The tapestry hangs in the air before her, a perfect creation glowing with fire and hope. In the darkness beyond, her half-blinded eyes discern a silhouette. A woman, helmed and regal, who studies her work with a critical eye. Her own gaze follows and she sees the flaw. The error which, perhaps, underlays all others, turning her every bid for victory into failure. And she knows how it must be mended. It is not easy to cast the final row to cloud her own mind, robbing herself of this memory, the knowledge that she has woven Odysseus's fate and, through him, the fate of them all. But she must. If she knows what is to come, she will ruin it. She will betray the truth through a careless word or a too cautious act. There is a reason this gift is a thing of gods and not mortals. The thread settles into place, binding her own fate. She will see her husband and not know him. Recognition will not come until he proves himself to her again. Her weaving is done. She kneels before the gray-eyed goddess and bows her head, accepting the ignorance that wisdom bestows. The brilliant light of her creation flares and then fades away. Her maids find her collapsed on the floor and hurry her off to bed. These are the ones whose threads will continue. They have kept faith with their queen, and so they will not be hanged with treacherous Melantho and her sisters. But all of that lies in a future they have not seen. Neither maid nor mistress knows what she has done. She sleeps a day and a night, and when she rises, her hair is as long as it ever was. She goes about her duties in a daze, which her maids attribute to the absence of her son. Their reasoning is borne out when Telemachus returns, for then it seems that she wakes at last from her dream. She goes to the head of the hall, looking out over her suitors, the men who have clamored for her hand, believing her to be the means by which they will shape their own fates. The old beggar stands disregarded at the back of the hall. In this moment, every eye is upon her. Penelope holds the mighty bow in her hand and speaks for all to hear. My husband will be the man who can string the bow of Odysseus and fire an arrow through twelve axe heads. Thus the fates have decreed, and on my word, it shall be so. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Brava, Marie Brennan, for taking Penelope in the Odyssey, a, a victim all the way through, and giving her agency. Oh, yeah. So yeah. beautifully done. Doesn't it, change the story. This is what Marie right? Brennan does. I mean, she she takes these classic stories and she reimagines them with a strong feminist bent. And she really deep dives into the characters. Yeah. And she doesn't change the end of the story. She just builds, not just, there's no just in this story. She builds within it. She I gives think, context oh. to what we already know. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, reimagined myths are totally my jam. And also, I love the writing in the story. Marie Brennan has such a versatile narrative voice. And the one she uses here really captures the mythic qualities of Daughter of Necessity. In our second story, our protagonist was a goddess for 11 years. And then they sent her home. Friends and gentities, this is Marie Brennan's Once a Goddess, narrated by Lisa Flanagan. For eleven years, Hatirekhmet was a goddess. And then they sent her home. She didn't understand. They explained it to her, in patient tones just bordering on the patronizing. And she didn't understand. They told her, again and again, right up until the moment it ended, because they had done this before and they knew the goddess never understood. She didn't believe them until the ceremony, when a little girl with wide, dark eyes came into the sanctum and touched her on the brow. That little girl, blessed with the 17 signs of perfection, was Hathirechmet now. After 11 years, she who had been Hathirechmet was Nefret again. And then they sent her home. They said the woman in the Waddle and Daub house was her mother, and Nefret accepted it, numbly, as she had accepted everything since that little girl took her place. No, not her place, Hathirechmet's place, and she was Hathirechmet no more. That honor passed now to another, as it always did. They told her to be proud. Eleven years was a long time. Few girls retained their perfection for so long. Most ceased to be the goddess much younger. The woman in the house no more knew what to do with Nefret than Nefret knew what to do with herself. She introduced herself as Merintari, and the two of them embraced while the priests looked on with benevolent smiles. But it was brief and unbearably awkward. They parted and did not touch again. Slaves carried the priest's litters away and the plainer one Nefret had occupied. And that simply, the last vestige of her temple life was gone. But casting off that life was not so easily done. You are dusty from the road. No doubt you wish to bathe, Marintari said. And Nefret stood dumbly waiting for slaves to come and wash her. I have prepared food. Please, eat. Marantari said, and Nefret stared at the spiced paste and flat cakes laid before her, the small bowl of dried figs. You will sleep here with me, Marantari said, and Nefret turned her face from the straw mattress, willing herself not to cry. Hathi Rekhmet did not choose her vessels according to caste. The 17 signs of perfection could appear in the meanest hovel as easily as the imperial palace, as indeed they had eleven years before. Awkwardness gave way to rage quickly enough. Nefret was accustomed to luxury, servitude, and instant obedience. She did not know how to do the simplest of chores, and became furious when Marantari tried to teach her. Wash these dishes, Marantari said, and Nefret slapped them from her hands. Sweep the floor, Marantari said, and Nefret hurled the broom out the door. Bring in more dung for the fire, Marantari said, and Nefret fled the house. 
Had her father been alive, she would have been curbed quickly enough. No woman so useless would ever be bought as a wife. She had to learn a wife's place and a wife's skills soon, before age rendered her a spinster. Neffert's father would have beaten the willfulness out of her rather than abandon her to that fate. But he died two years after she became the goddess's avatar. She had no memory of him, no more than she did of Merentari. Huddled in the lee of the river bank, out of the punishing sun and free, however briefly, of the life that now trapped her, Nefert entertained a vision of something different. The priest said this woman was her mother, but what if they lied? Surely Hatirechmet would not have abandoned her to this, to flies and dust and fires built of dung. For eleven years, Nefret had been her vessel. Did that mean nothing to the goddess now? Tears leaked from beneath Nefret's tightly closed lids, tracking through the grime on her cheeks and falling to the thirsty earth, where they vanished without a trace. Marantari's younger brother found her there a short while later and dragged her back to the house. He was not cruel, but he tolerated no resistance and there were marks on her arm when he finally released her inside the hut. Marantari scowled, her patience worn thin by Nefret's intransigence. There you are, get washed up and quickly. We don't want to miss this chance. A tub of water waited out back, and a hard bristled brush that Marantari used to scrub Nefret clean. Her brisk ministration was as unlike the gentle service of the slaves as the dull, repetitive food was to the feasts of the temple. But it did the work. Nefert was as clean as she'd been since coming to this place she refused to call home. Her mahogany skin glowed, and Marantari scraped her thick hair back into two braids so tight they made Nefert's head ache. Instead of Marantari's cast-off clothing, she wore a thin robe she had never seen before plain but neatly pleated, and of good linen. When Nefert was clean and dressed, Marantari took her roughly by the chin and forced the girl to look at her. Taller than this woman, they said, was her mother. Nefert felt calm superiority envelop her. She might be in exile, but she still had her pride. You keep your mouth shut except when he asks you a question, Marantari said. You be polite and meek. This might be your one chance at any kind of future, girl. If you spit on this, you'll end your days as a beggar in the streets. Understand? Nefret did not, but she learned quickly enough. A man came to inspect her. Nefret's mind would not let go of that word, inspect, as a temple servant might inspect a cow offered for sacrifice. There were men, it seemed, who would pay a good bride price for a woman who was once a goddess. Men interested enough in prestige that they did not care how bad a wife they bought. Nefert kept her mouth shut, but not for the reasons her mother might have wished. She feared she would be sick. Reduced to this after the life she had lived. Bought and sold like livestock. The man did not speak to her at all questions or otherwise. When his inspection was done, he turned to Merentari. Can she cook? Weave? So? Lying was not among Merentari's talents. Her hesitation was answer enough. I didn't expect it, the man said. His own robe was finely woven, edged with azure embroidery, such as he would have some servants, possibly even slaves wealth by the standards of this hovel. Teach her basic domestic duties. If she passes muster by flood time, I'll buy her. Marantari's weathered face showed gratitude that bordered on fawning. She was not old, but hard work had aged her young. Beauty was a luxury few peasants could afford. Yes, noble one, thank you. I will make sure she learns. When the wealthy man was gone, Merentari turned to her daughter. You will learn, or you will starve. In the dark hours before dawn, when Nefret so frequently lay awake, she knew that Merentari did not mean to make her suffer. The woman was harsh because there was no other choice. 
She did not want her daughter to end like this. Scraping the barest existence out of the hard-packed dirt. Pity would not buy her a better future. In the bright hours of day, Nefret hated her mother with a passion she fancied rivaled the rages of Hathi Rekmet herself. Marantari bent grimly to the task of making her daughter into a suitable wife. A thick reed from the riverbank became an all-too-familiar fixture in Marantari's hand, laying burning lines across Nefret's back when she rebelled. Never before had she been beaten. Rarely had she even suffered pain. And then slaves had raced to bring soothing ointment, tea to numb her senses. Pride kept Nefret's jaw clenched. She cried out the first few times, but soon forbade herself such weakness. She tried, if only because it was a path for her to follow and promised a life more like the one she knew. But the shuttle and thread were alien in her hands, the cook fire smoky and foul. Other girls learned these skills from childhood, practicing them for years under their mother's eyes. The priests had taught Nefret all the wrong things, and then dropped her into a life for which she was wholly unprepared. She tried, and she failed. Until one day she could endure no more and ran away again, her feet this time taking her in a new direction. Nefert smelled the market before she saw it. A confusing welter of dust and sweat, food and animal dung. She crested a rise and saw the clustered buildings. Mud brick structures huddled up against each other, with sun-bleached awnings branching out from their walls. A market was a recognizable thing to her, though this one was shabby and small. She had gone through markets before during festival processions. Her bare feet led her down the slope and toward the market as if of their own accord. At first, no one noticed her. Neffert felt like a ghost, drifting down the strip of sunlight between the awnings on either side. Silent amidst the market's clamor, she could almost believe she didn't exist. But this was a small market. Strangers were rare, and even more so strangers like her, beautiful and unweathered by a peasant's hard life. A middle-aged woman bent to whisper to another, and then someone else pointed, and little by little the market fell into stillness. The stillness was broken by a young woman who hesitated at the edge of the crowd, then darted forward and flung herself face down onto the hard-packed soil at Nefret's feet. Mistress of the desert winds, she said, her voice ragged and unclear. Bless me, I beg you. The words struck Nefret like the chilled water the slaves poured over her for the ceremony of the river's coming. Her fingers twitched reflexively. In learning to weave, they had not forgotten how to form the sign of blessing. But she was not the goddess. She ached to reach out, to make the sign above the young woman's head, perhaps even to move her foot forward so the supplicant could kiss it. To these people, she was not Nefret, daughter of nobody. She was Hatirachmet, the divine face, the sand mother. Relentless and harsh as the desert and sun, but not without mercy. But she was not Hathirekmet. Not anymore. To bless this young woman would be blasphemy. The magnitude of her loss gaped before her, stretching into the endless distance like the desert itself, even more barren of life. Nefret stared down at the young woman, stricken and shaking, while the silence stretched tighter and tighter. Then she spun without a word and fled back to the house to weep for her loss where no one could see. But Marantari was waiting for her there, reed switch in hand and fury on her face. Nefret stopped dead facing the woman in the doorway. Her mother, they said, and to deny it was childish. A peasant whose daughter was born with the 17 signs the priests looked for. An ordinary woman, whose ambition could rise no higher than to sell that same daughter to a man that wanted for his wife a woman who was once a goddess. That man, she did not even know his name, wanted her for who she had been. No, for who she was now. The loss she had suffered. Hathirechmet he feared, but Nefret he could own.
To go into his house would mean accepting that her loss was her only value now. I am not Hatirekmet, Nefret said to her mother. The words came out steady, with a deadness that could pass for calm. But I will not sell myself as her leavings. Merentari's face twisted as she saw Nefret's one chance, her one chance, withering into death. No one else will take you. Nefret nodded slowly. The logic was inescapable. Then no one else will have me, she said. I would rather be nothing than be his. Marantari's expression showed that she did not understand. Nefret did not know when her mother realized the truth. By the time it happened, she had turned her back and walked away from the hut into the desert. The sand burned against Nefret's forehead and arms, scorching her body even through the cotton of her robe, cooking the flesh beneath. But she remained motionless, accepting the pain. In the temple, there were slaves whose sole duty was to stoke the fires beneath raised platforms of sand, so the penitents above continually felt the sun's heat against their bodies. Here, without slaves, the sand grew cool. Nefret rose and crawled sideways, then stretched out again, burning herself anew. She did not pray. No words could express the screaming need in her heart. She did not know whether she wanted to be purified, made perfect again so she could once more be Hatirechmet's vessel. To deny and disfigure the flesh that had known divinity and lost it. To die and feel this pain no more. All of them, none of them she did not know. I would rather be nothing than be his. She would rather be nothing than what she was now. When sunset came, the sand chilled quickly. At first, it was a pleasant change from the heat of the day. Then it became unpleasant, and the desire for self-punishment withered. She rose and walked unsteadily to a rocky upthrust nearby. And there she found a tiny spring. She drained it in moments, then had to wait for the pool to refill. But it was enough to keep her alive. She did not want to die. It was more than she had known that morning. Very well, Nefret said to the night sky, the pale and envious crescent of Hatirechmet's younger brother. I will live, and I will stay alive until- She paused, thinking, looking at the tiny glittering pinpricks of the stars, cast off when the moon's folly caused his power to explode outward and be lost. Until I am the goddess once more. They came to her refuge, there among the rocks. She had not fled so far as to vanish. Men went out into the desert's edge to hunt lions, to trade with distant oases. They saw her silhouette atop a ridge, or glimpsed her hiding when they came to her tiny spring. A ragged figure, her robe sand brown with dust, her fine black hair tangled into whips. She was far from perfect now. But Nefret could not regain the qualities she had lost. Not now. Not when blood ran from between her legs, answering the moon's call. If she was to be Hatirechmet again, she would have to find another way. So she remembered what the scriptures said about Khapep, how the holy man had survived upon the flesh of lizards and the venom of scorpions, and she learned to do the same. It was bitter fare, even as the desert was bitter, and she welcomed it. Hatirechmet was the sun and the sand. Nefret would be the same. They came to her among the rocks and brought gifts of food, the finest they had to give. Dried figs and dates, fish from the river's bounty. But Amuthamsa was, the priest said, why Hathirekmet always withdrew. The goddess departed when the blood came, for it was the sign of the river god's touch. His fertility was alien to Hathirekmet. Nefret ate scorpions and left the fish to rot in the sun. They came for her blessing and she turned them away. 
Holy woman? She was no such thing. She would be, someday. And when that dawn came, she would extend her hand once more. But until then, she was only Nefret, who let her skin dry out and her hair turn brittle, and tried to remember what she had once known by instinct, by divine grace. She barely spoke a word until Sechaf came. Nefret woke before dawn and went to the spring. She would drink no more until the sun left the sky. She scooped water into her mouth with dirty hands, wishing she could do without, wondering if that was what Hathirachmet wanted, wondering if the goddess would touch her in the instant before death. She was not ready to try, and perhaps that was why she failed. When she lifted her head, a man sat on a boulder across from her. Nefret heard him approach, but hoped if she ignored him, he would go away. He was not a villager, as she had assumed. He wore a traveler's robe and bore a staff, but he did not have the look of a pilgrim. His weathered face was seamed with patient lines. Dawn is near, he said. A fact she knew as well or better than he. But he did not have the tone of one lecturing. Rather, he seemed to acknowledge the intrusion of his presence. When it has passed, I hope you will spare me your time. Nefret's voice came out smoothly from her newly wetted throat, not its usual dry rasp. I have no blessing to give. I do not seek your blessing, she scowled. I will not marry you either. I do not seek your hand. What then? The lines of his face settled in the pre-dawn light. Your knowledge. She stared for a moment curious against her will. But the sun drew near. She had no time to spare for him. Nefret turned away and climbed the rocks, greeting Hatirekmet from the pinnacle, basking in this, the goddess's gentlest touch. Soon enough heat would scorch the water from her as she hunted lizards to eat. When she descended, the man was still there, patient as stone. I know nothing, Nefret said and picked up several likely rocks. You know something shared only by a four-year-old girl in a temple, the man said. You know Hathirekmet. Nefert's fingers curled around a sharp-edged fragment of flint. I knew her, she answered, voice roughening to harshness. She is gone from me now. The man nodded. And that makes you unique. Nineteen years ago, I tried to find her who had been Hathirekmet, only to discover she had been sold into marriage, to a husband who let her speak to no other. She is dead now, in childbirth. Eleven years ago, I tried again, only to discover she who had been Hathirekmet hanged herself from her father's great loom. She too is dead. There is only you who understands the goddess better than any man or woman living, who understands, but is herself. I cannot ask these questions of Hathirekmet. I ask them of you. He paused, still seated on his rock. If you will let me. The stone hung heavy in her hand. The man's eyes rested unwavering on her. On her. Nefret, who was once a goddess, and for that, he valued her. But not like the man Marintari would have sold her to. Her worth lay in what she kept, not what she had lost. Ask, she said. The man stood and bowed his gratitude. Then I will begin. Of temple life, I have heard. I know the ceremonies and indulgences the luxury in which the goddess's avatar lives. But only you can tell me, what is the divine presence like? The stone fell from Nefret's limp fingers thudding into the dust. Staring unseeing into the brightening sky, she whispered, I cannot remember. It was the truth no one spoke, and Sekhaf believed her. 
In the early years, Hatirekmet dwelt often in the body of her avatar, but as the child grew, the goddess became less and less. She still performed the ceremonies, for they had merit even if the divine presence had temporarily withdrawn. The avatar was the conduit from earth to heaven. But as Hathirekmet retreated, the priests began their search for the new vessel. Nefert had not felt the goddess's touch for a year before she left. Sekhoff sat by as Nefret sliced open the belly of a lizard and said, Why? Why does she leave? He was a philosopher and did not ask out of cruelty. He had been with her among the rocks for days now, carefully probing, shifting between topics arcane and obvious, questioning everything. Nefret licked the blood from her fingers and answered him. Amuthamsa. A woman is of the river's world, not the desert. And Amuthamsa is friend to Hathirekmet's brother, the moon. Once we begin to bleed, we are no longer fit for her presence. But you said she leaves earlier sometimes. Six months after the last visitation, Nefret had bled for the first time. She had no such name to give herself on that day. The Avatar thought of herself as Hathirekmet, even when the divine presence was not in her. She knew no other identity. But Hathirekmet did not bleed. Nefret did. She had stayed longer than most, the priest said, her voice remaining high and clear, her skin unblemished, her limbs slender. A far cry from her appearance now. Most girls lost Hathirekmet sooner, before they ever bled. She can sense Amatamsa's approach, Nefret said. It was the answer the priests gave. She could feel Sekhoff's dissatisfaction with it. He loved purity of thought, the clean lines of truth. Anything blurry or untidy displeased him. No one at the temple thought as he did. They had their scriptures and their answers. They had rituals to carry out, ceremonies to conduct, comforting patterns to shape their lives. None of them had Sekhoff's restless, questioning mind. Nefret did not blame them. She had not questioned either not until the philosopher came. And his presence, which she had feared would distract her, honed the blade of her own thoughts. If Nefret tested her body less often against the sun, she tested her mind more, contemplating the nature of Hathirekmet. When Sekhaf went to the village for food, she meditated in silence. When he returned, she had new answers for him, new fragments of memory dredged up from the forgotten corners of the past. In the desert, there was no time. The rains fell in the mountains and brought the river's flood, Amuthamsa's bounty for mankind. Nefret knew nothing of it. The villagers left their offerings and she ignored them, fish bones drying to glass in the sun. Other men came. One by one, following word of Sekhaf. Philosophers, men of the mind instead of the temple their fingers stained from scribing. Some, meaning well, tried to hunt lizards for Nefret so she might spend more time in thought. Sekhoff taught them better. They waited with patience as she dug out scorpions. They trailed after her in silence as she walked the rounds of her rocks, bare feet hard and cracked as horn against the stone. They did not lust after her, as that man had in Marantari's house one might as soon lust after the desert. But they asked her questions and listened when she answered. They say it is because we cannot draw near Hathirekmet ourselves, Nefert said, breaking a new flint to use for butchering lizards. Her hands had turned into bony, calloused things, strong as old leather. The sun warmed her filthy hair. The ancient priests built a pyramid that reached up to the very sky seeking the goddess, and were burnt when they climbed to the top. Ordinary people cannot bear her presence and live. Men both older and younger deferred to Sekhaf here. They spoke among themselves, but only he spoke to Nefret. He said, But the perfection of her avatars protects them? Imperfections are flaws that can break the vessel, Nefret said, cracking a clean face off the flint. Pottery would be more fitting, but she had no pots out here. I do not think that is why she takes avatars, though. The philosopher thought about it. 
One of the younger men murmured to him and Sekhoff nodded. They allow us to experience the divine presence safely. Yet why should that matter to Hathi Rekhmet? She is the sun's hammer, the desert wind. Humans are not meant to be close to such. Nefret tested the edge of her flint with her thumb, feeling it press against her tough skin. It is not for us. It is for her, for the goddess, so she may experience the world without destroying it. That is what I think. Why else should the Avatar live so lavishly? She ate foods sweet and spicy, had garments of smooth linen and supple leather and delicate fur. It was a feast of the senses, for one who otherwise could never know such. If the sun descended to earth, she would burn it to a cinder. Hatirekmet chose avatars because she was curious about the world she saw so far beneath. Nefret sometimes wondered if the goddess did not envy Amuthamsa, who enjoyed all the earth's bounty without fear. The men whispered to each other, voices rising in excitement. Sekhaf clapped his hands sharply and they ceased. We distract her with our chatter, he said. Nefret, our thanks. You have given us much to think about. We will return tomorrow. She rose from her crouch, feeling the flex and contraction of her wiry muscles. A body, imperfect as avatars never were. Yet if the goddess sought sensation, why choose only the slender, the unblemished, the young? There was a whole world of experience, and Hathi Rekhmet felt only the merest sliver of it. No, Nefret said. I will spend tomorrow in contemplation. When I am ready, I will leave a sign for you. A lizard skull, placed at the foot of the path leading up to her shelter. Nefret had demanded solitude before. Sekhaf bowed. As you wish. The others began climbing down the rocks, talking more loudly as they went. Sekhaf stayed, hesitating until they were well away and he and Nefret stood alone atop the flint-littered plateau. You have my thanks as well, he said. Startled, she found herself wondering how long ago the others had come. How long it had been since they were just two, the philosopher and the young woman who was once a goddess. I came to you hoping to understand something I could never experience for myself. I know now the impossibility of that but you have given me something far greater. You may not be holy as Khapep was, but you, Nefret, have wisdom no priest or scripture could ever grant. The world beyond this place will benefit from that wisdom for ages to come. She blinked eyes dried by sun and wind. That men had come to debate these questions she knew, she had never thought beyond that. What did the priests think of this woman in the desert who spoke so familiarly of Hatirekmet? Did they revere her as the villagers did? Fear her? Dismiss her as a simple mad woman? Nefret might have thought herself mad were it not for Sekhaf. He saw wisdom in her words. But if it was there, they had created it together. Questions and answers dancing around and ever closer to the truth. He bowed and left her climbing down the rocks after his companions. And not until he was gone did she whisper, thank you, in reply. She greeted the dawn from the pinnacle of her rocks, as she had for countless days. The soft breeze of morning blew over her skin, bringing warmth to banish the night's bitter chill. Soon it would be heat, punishing and fierce, growing through the day until at last the sun retreated, and night claimed the desert once more. Nefret understood that cycle as well as she did her own body. She knew Hathirekhmet's shifting arc through the sky and the way the wind answered it. She knew the textures of limestone and flint and the restless dance of the sand. She knew the 17 perfections had nothing to do with any of it. Oh, the priests did not deceive. Those were the sign of Hathirekhmet's choice. But the priests mistook the sign for the cause. That certainty had grown in Nefret's heart through all the long debates with the philosophers. The goddess did not occupy a body because it had skin of a particular shade, or a voice of a particular timbre. 
If that was not what drew her to a body, then it followed that the loss of those perfections was not why she left. Something else drove the goddess from her avatars. This was the question upon which Nefret fixed her mind. She put aside all other thoughts. Lizards and scorpions, Sekhaf and the philosophers, Merentari and the man who would have bought her. Nothing but Hathi Rekmet. She sat under the eye of the sun, not moving, letting the wind scour her dry. She had drunk no water since the previous dawn, and would drink none until the sun set tonight. She did not seek death, not as she once thought she did, but she seared all the river's gifts from herself, the better to know Hatirekmet, to know the answer to this one question, why the goddess had left. The sun beat more strongly upon her with every passing moment. She felt the sweat dry upon her skin until no more came. She heard the pounding of her own heart, marking the incremental movement of the sun. And she remembered. The presence she had gradually lost. The blazing glory of Hatirekmet, pitiless as stone, but not cruel. Cruelty implied a desire for suffering in others. Hatirekmet did not desire. She simply was. And to pour a fragment of herself into an avatar was to be as she otherwise could not be. To feel and see a world otherwise distant to her. The luxury was the doing of the priests, because they thought the goddess wished it. They honored the one they believed Hatirekmet's gift to them, thinking it the respectful thing to do. They did not understand. And Nefret had not either. She remembered that blazing presence annihilating all other thought. As a child, it had been easy. She lived in the moment, thinking neither of past nor future. She was Hati Rekmet. But as she grew, she changed. Thoughts entered her head and did not leave. Dislike of one temple maiden, amusement at an elderly priest, curiosity about a story from the scriptures, ideas and feelings which had to be pushed aside to make room for Hati Rekmet. It grew harder and harder, and the goddess came more rarely because she could not be both Hatirekmet and herself. Understanding swirled through the reeling dizziness of her head. The goddess chose children because they were unformed, empty, vessels she could fill. Life was the imperfection, the cracks through which the world entered changing little girls into young women. And day by day, year by year, the avatars pushed the goddess out to make room for themselves which meant she could undo it. The sun's hammer beat upon her, seeking entrance. All she had to do was step aside and let the goddess in. Let go of Nefret, and become Hathirekmet once more. Then the goddess could experience something new. A grown body, twisted hard by the desert. A life austere instead of luxurious. Her skin pulsed a fragile barrier between humanity and divinity. It was easy, simple, the kind of pure answer Sekhaf sought. Sekhaf. She held in the palm of her hand all the things that barred Hatirek met from her. All the other thoughts, all the desires and annoyances and knowledge, all the things he called her wisdom. All the things that brought the philosophers to her desert refuge, that fueled their debates in the long heat of day. Everything that made her who she was. She could regain what she had lost by losing what she had gained. Once she would have found it no choice at all. Nefret was nothing. Hatirekbet, everything. But in her seeking, she had found another life. One of lizards and scorpions a muddy spring and a hard bed, and questions always to be answered. It was not the life she had known in the temple, but it was hers. Hers, not Hatirekmet's. I was once a goddess. Now I am myself, and myself I shall remain.
Nefret curled her hands around herself, filled her mind with thoughts of life, and bid Hatirekmet farewell. She awoke to stone, rough under her cheek and hand. Nefret opened eyes as dry as dust. She knew without thinking that it was sunset, heat slipping quickly from the air, familiar shadows consuming the world around her. One shadow was out of place. She spoke, and the word went little further than her lips. Sekhaf. He heard her anyway, or perhaps just saw her move. The philosopher rose from hiding and came to her side, shamefaced. I should not have disturbed you, he said. But I watched from below and saw you collapse, and I thought. For once, he did not share his thought. He did not have to. Nefret reached out and he gave her the skin bag at his side. She drank greedily, tasting the leather, letting water spill over her cheeks and chin. When at last she stopped, he asked quietly, Did you find your answer? The one she had sought and more besides. Hathirek met poor Nefret no grudge for her choice. A grudge implied desire and Hathirek met desired nothing. Not as a human might. Not as Nefret desired the life she had chosen to keep. I found myself, she said. That is answer enough. She could feel Sekhoff's dissatisfaction with it. But that was all right. It was one of his favorite sayings that questions bred answers and answers more questions. He would ask her more before long. Together they would create wisdom, a new understanding of the goddess. And the time had come, Nefret thought, for that wisdom to go beyond this desert refuge, into the world without, to the priests and the temple, and the little girl who was Hatirekmet, who someday would become someone else. When she did, Nefret would be there to greet her. I thought this story was so imaginative. Most writers would, I think, tell the story of a mortal ascending to godhood. Brennan choosing to focus on the end of those experiences and on a return to mortal life after more than a decade is simply genius because it's so heartachingly human. This story of Nefret spoke so deeply to me. This idea of a woman being chosen, or a child really, being chosen for her, was it 17 signs of perfection? Again, Marie Brennan is taking this idea of woman as object, woman as 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 an object for men, and giving her agency, where mm-hmm. she she's no longer a goddess. Where do you go from there? And what does she learn? She learns that the thing she wants most to be the goddess is actually the opposite. She wants to be herself in it's the so end. Poignant. I know, it's so poignant. Can I weep? It's so, yeah, no. I, I love this story. Uh, yeah, as soon as I read it uh, when it was submitted to me uh, for this show, I knew that this is definitely a keeper. Oh, I'm finding her other work, too, by oh, the way. Yeah, we, we, have a, we have a fair number of Marie Brennan stories on uh, stories to keep you up at night Fabulous. and more to come. So, And that's a wrap. Thanks, as always, Christina, for making this so much fun. Nowhere else I'd rather be. What's the saying? In the end, we are all stories. And if stories like these are what you're into, you can show your approval with a five-star review wherever you're listening to me right now. And join us next time for A Stormy Night, A Woman with Strange Powers, and The Young Woman Whose Life She Transforms. Until then, gentle listeners, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 63, features Daughter of Necessity and Once a Goddess by Marie Brennan. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Telesca. Performed by Nicole Zanzarella and Lisa Flanagan. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.